0: Copy of God's Word and open it uh, one more time to the book of Psalms, and the very last one, Psalm 150. If you're new to making your way around the Bible, you can Uh, If you have one uh, uh, with you, or if you're using one of the ones under the seat in front of you, just more or less open it to the middle. If you open to Proverbs, flip back a few pages until you get to Psalms. If you open it to uh, Job or something like that, flip a few pages forward until you find it. The large uh, numbers there on the page are the Psalm numbers or chapter numbers. The small uh, numbers throughout the text are the verses, uh, and you'll be able to find more or less where you are. There should be some sort of Uh, reference in the top right or left-hand corner that'll tell you what psalm uh, more or less is on that page. Psalm 150, the very last of the Psalter. And we have had an amazing time, I think, in the last five psalms uh, of the Psalter these last several weeks. Uh, I was blessed by uh, Ken and Aaron's preaching both the last two weeks. I uh, deeply enjoyed being able to sit under their teaching of God's Word, and faithfully so, and am grateful to them and grateful to God that He's given uh, men like them to our church who can open the Word for us uh, and teach us by it. Uh, We come now to the last of these final five psalms, these doxological psalms uh, in the Psalter. Psalter is just a word for collection of psalms. All of these five psalms that we have looked at, 146 through 150, all start and end the same, with the same line, the same phrase, the same one word in the Hebrew in which they were written, hallelujah, praise the Lord. All y'all praise the Lord. As we come now to the final of the Psalms, which is kind of a a crescendo, if you will. It's one last big push to finish these doxological, these Psalms of praise. We come to Psalm 150, which is a relatively simple Psalm in its construction, only six verses. It reads relatively quickly, but it ends with one final big push of praise to the Lord for all who read it and are gathered together to worship Him. As we come to Psalm 150, we'll find here in in the uh, course of these short six verses that the psalmist is telling to everyone that God is worthy of all of His people's unhindered worship. God is worthy of all the worship that you can give with all that you are, irrespective of your limitations or abilities, whatever. Whatever you can muster in praise to God, He's worthy of it. He says that. In one short line, the, the second-to-last line of the psalm, which is the main idea, really, of the whole psalm, which is this. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Will you stand with me as we honor God, reading His Word, Psalm 150. The psalmist, writing in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, writes these words for God's people. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. This is God's Word. You may be seated. That is the main idea. This is the main thought of the psalmist, isn't it? Of God to his people through the psalmist. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Psalm 150 is only six verses. And I thought as Pastor Danny and I were working through this, we usually work through the text that will be in the next Sunday on Monday morning. And I told him, man, I don't know, you might have to plan a lot of songs for Sunday. It's only six verses and they seem pretty straightforward. And then I started thinking and uh, there's a lot here. The psalm breaks down into essentially four sort of short movements, and the movements come in various verses. Verse 1 is a movement, verse 2, verses 3 through 5, and then verse 6. The first emphasis that the psalmist makes is calling attention in verse 1 to the place of God's praise. Praise the Lord, hallelujah. Praise God in His sanctuary, praise Him in His mighty heavens. Verse 1 tells us very clearly in two lines about the place of God's praise. It takes place in, in two places, which really are meant to encompass all places. It takes place in His sanctuary and in His mighty heavens. His sanctuary is literally, the, the Hebrew phrase translated literally into English is, Praise Yahweh in His holiness. The Hebrew word that's translated holiness or in other places sanctuary is the word kadosh. And it it can mean holiness. It can mean sanctuary. It just depends on the context. And context dictates here in Psalm 150 that the psalmist is saying, praise God in his sanctuary, in the place of his perfect manifest holiness. Most commonly in the Old Testament, the sanctuary of the Lord is that most inner room of the tabernacle, that tent for worship that the Israelites, the Hebrews used as they were traveling through the wilderness and that they continued to worship in until the temple was built by Solomon. That most inner room, the place called the most holy place or the holy of holies, is the place called God's sanctuary. And that sanctuary was the place where God would manifest his presence and his holiness among his people. It was the room that was off limits to every member of the people of Israel except to the high priest and only once a year where he would go in to make atonement for his own sins and to make atonement for the sins of the people. This room was so holy, so guarded, that the high priest dared not go into the holy place apart from ensuring that he was following God's instruction for how he was to enter it in holiness. In holiness to give atonement for his sin with humility before the Almighty God. The sanctuary of God is not a place that people would enter into flippantly. This call to worship God in his sanctuary in Psalm 1 seems to me like an idealist's perspective on worship. Ideally, in the best of all worlds, all of Israel would be able to worship God in the Holy of Holies, right? Ideally, the best place to worship God is is the place where His holiness is most perfectly manifest, where His presence is most tangible among His people. But for all of their people's sin and for all of God's holiness, this was not an option for them. You catch the subtle longing, I hope, that's nested within this exultant call to praise. Praise God in His sanctuary. All of God's people are meant to praise Him in His holy presence, and yet not all of them can quite as they would like. Imagine being a member of the people of Israel and reading this or hearing this psalm, singing the psalm. Praise God in His sanctuary, knowing that the sanctuary was a room, if you're not a high priest, that you would never be able to go into. In a subtle way, that I think Christians like us often take for granted. This one verse, praise God in His sanctuary, points to a future hope that becomes a reality when Christ's death is the impetus, it's the cause, the catalyst for the tearing of the veil, the curtain that barred access to the most holy place in the temple. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 51, we read that when Jesus died, the, te- the, the curtain in the temple that separated the holy place that only priests could enter from the most holy place, the holy of holies, that curtain was torn in half from top to bottom, uh, symbolizing a breaking through of God's holiness to all people because Christ has died for sins. Christ creates in His own body, His own death for sinners, a means by which all people can enter into the presence of God without fear for, uh, of death for their sins because Jesus has made them holy as they trust in Him. Amen. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews in chapter 10, verses 19 through 22, emphasizes this reality for us today, that, that there is access for us to praise God in His sanctuary. He says, Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Praise God In His sanctuary was a longing hope for the people of Israel. It is a hope realized. It is a reality for God's people in Christ. Moreover, we are reminded in this one verse that the earthly sanctuary of God is no longer a, a physical building. In the days of the Old Covenant, it was. It was a physical temple, a physical room within it that was barred, uh, uh, that, that uh, uh, there was no access for certain people within the community. But the sanctuary of God, the earthly sanctuary of God, is no longer a physical building, but rather it's His people by His Spirit. The sanctuary of God is not these four walls. Commonly, rooms like this are called sanctuaries or Uh, or worship centers, as we affectionately call our own in different churches. But this room, these walls do not make a sanctuary. The new covenant idea, the new covenant picture, the new covenant reality of the sanctuary of God is not a building with walls, with brick and mortar or plaster and drywall, but the living heart of those who know Christ. And God makes His home, He makes His sanctuary, our hearts, as He gives His Spirit to dwell in those who have repented of sin and trusted in Christ. Paul the Apostle writes in Romans chapter 8, verses 10 and 11, he says, If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you... He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. In the same but a better way, as God manifested his holiness and his presence in the holy of holies in his sanctuary, in the old covenant temple, all the more has he now made his holiness manifest as he resided in, not physical buildings, but the hearts of those who love him. So this, this call in Psalm 150, verse 1, to praise God in His sanctuary is no longer something we're hoping to be able to do, but it is a reality for us who know Christ. We are to praise God in His sanctuary. The psalmist says, praise Him in His mighty heavens. Where the sanctuary refers in some way to God's earthly dwelling. The mighty heavens, His mighty heavens refers to His heavenly dwelling, His spiritual dwelling. In the same way that Isaiah, the prophet, saw the Lord seated on his heavenly throne in Isaiah chapter 6. And John, the apostle, writing in Revelation, uh, uh, recounts for us this vision of a heavenly throne room in Revelation 4 and 5. There in both visions, Isaiah 6, Revelation 4 and 5, that whole throne room of God, the heavenly dwelling of God, sounds like what? Worship. Worship. All these countless, innumerable, myriads upon myriads of angelic beings singing praises to God. And in John's vision in Revelation, he sees something more than just angels singing praises to God. He also sees the souls of the redeemed who are waiting for Christ to return and consummate His kingdom. They're also adding their worship to the worship of angels in God's heavenly throne room. So there is in in Psalm 150, verse 1, this cosmic call to worship. Praise Him in His sanctuary, the place of His dwelling, the manifestation of His holiness on earth, and praise Him in the heavens. Where do we praise Him? Everywhere. Everywhere in heaven and on earth. There is literally no place inside or outside of God's creation that is not a place of worship. It's all meant to be a place for the resounding praises of His creatures. Even more, though, this call for worship of God on earth and in heaven looks forward to a day when heaven and earth will finally meet in perfect union when Christ returns to raise the living and the dead and to usher His people into the eternal dwelling place. New heavens, new earth. Whereas Revelation twenty-one three says the dwelling place of God will be with man. So even in as much as we have... have understood and realized the hope of worshiping God in His sanctuary as His Holy Spirit dwells in us by faith. So also, are we still looking forward to an even better reality than that? There's one encouragement that comes to us, at least one from Psalm 150 verse 1, and that is this. The place of God's worship reminds us that everywhere is an appropriate place to worship God everywhere is an appropriate place to worship God. Whether you're in this room or in the parking lot or running laps around the park or taking a test at school or designing an experiment at work, every place, everywhere is an appropriate place to worship God. Our problem, I think sometimes, friends, is that we often approach worship as a thing that we go to, not a part of what we are. We don't think of everywhere being an appropriate place to worship God because in our maybe more contemporary Americanized understanding of what it means to be a Christian, worship is now a thing that we go to in a room with four walls and a nice sound system and fancy lights and projection. Worship is an experience I attend, not a thing I participate in. If your idea of worship is something that you go to, you will think that this place, you will be prone to think that this place, or, or maybe just your car when you're playing you know, Christian radio or whatever the case may be, that there are certain places that are good for worship and other places that are not. Now, I can think of a lot of places in the world, even in our city, where there is not much worship of God. And it would be strange to walk into and start worshiping God. There are some places where there are illicit and illegal criminal behavior going on that we are prone to look at and say, this place is not an appropriate place for worshiping God. I think we think about that wrongly. The problem is this place has not been filled with the worship of God. And so it has become what we what we look at as illicit or a place that harbors illicit and illegal activity and criminality and all that sort of all that other sort of stuff that we don't like to look at. We turn our faces away from. Friends, let's not approach those corners, those dark corners of our city, of our world that way saying God's worship doesn't belong there. Let's look at them and say what would this place be like if God's worship was there? How would the worship of God redeem this place, redeem this space, bring hope to those who are broken and hurting, and healing to those that, whose lives are being destroyed by whatever's going on here? If we could inject worship of God here, and not just by going and playing praise songs you know, for people to hear, but actually going and pointing people to Jesus, connecting them with the, the God who made us to worship. In verse 1, we see the place of God's praise. In verse 2, we see the reason for God's praise. The psalmist calls us to praise in a particular place, which by the way is every place. And then he tells us why we ought to praise God. Verse two, like verse one, says the same thing in sort of two ways. Uh, This is a a characteristic of Hebrew poetry. They'll say the same thing twice in slightly different ways. So uh, uh, verse one, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty heavens. It's two different ways of saying praise God everywhere. Verse 2, praise him for his mighty deeds, praise him according to his excellent greatness. Two slightly different ways about speaking about why we should praise God, but ultimately getting to one point. The reason for God's praise, the reason his people worship him, is because God does great things for them. God does great things for his people. The psalmist says that the Lord has done mighty deeds that warrant, that deserve our praise. From Noah's rescue to Abraham's call to the Hebrews' deliverance from slavery in Egypt to the conquest of Canaan to the provision of a king and the warning that comes through the prophets, even to the exile in Babylon and the return from exile to be a covenant people with God again. God's people have seen the goodness of God and His sovereign might and salvation time and time again. Of course, His mighty deeds do not end though with the return from Babylon in the Old Testament. But they continue into that period between the Testaments, the intertestamental period, about 400 years after the last prophet spoke and before Christ was born, when even then God preserved His people in the middle of warring nations and through Greek dominance of the known world and then through Roman ascendancy and then in the birth of Christ at just the right time and just the right way. God does mighty works for his people through the sinless life of Jesus and as he reveals the Father's character to all whom he encounters. God's mighty works follow through Jesus all the way to the cross and his death for sins. In his resurrection from the dead and in his ascension to the right hand of the Father, all the way through to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church, through the many peaks and valleys of the church age, the last 2,000 years, and on and on will the mighty works of God for his people go until he completes them all in the consummation when Jesus comes again. There's never been an age in in the life of God's people when he has not been doing mighty deeds for them. And more, it's not just the greatness of what God has done in His strength and in His wisdom for His people, but it's the very goodness of what He has done as well. The psalmist says we are to worship God according to His excellent greatness. This is the kind of God that the Lord is. This is the kind of God that Yahweh is. He is excellent. He is wonderful. He is utterly good in all that He does, never failing, never faulting, Every one of his works displaying his glory and all of his people in Psalm 150 verse 2 are called to praise him because of this. Because he does good and mighty works for his people. Verse 1 tells us, shows us that every place, everywhere is an appropriate place to worship God. Verse 2 tells us, friends, that everything God does is an appropriate cause for worship. Everything he does is good reason for you to praise him. Is good reason for me to worship him, which begs a question, I think. What is God doing in your life? If everything that God does is worthy, is, is an appropriate cause for worship, what do you have to worship, worship him for in your life? Friend, are you even aware of what God is doing in your life right now? I can't tell you how many times I've sat across the table from somebody in my office or coffee shop and asked the question, what's God doing in your life right now? To someone who claims to be a believer, and very often the expression or the response I get uh, in return is, what's God doing in my life right now? Yeah, what is God doing in your life right now? You said you believed in Christ for salvation. You turned from your sin. We're assuming that the Holy Spirit is dwelling in your heart by faith. And if the Holy Spirit's in you, He's going to be doing something. God's going to be working in your life in some way, shape, or form. We see in the Bible God doing all kinds of things, great and small, for His people. So, what's He doing in your life? Friends, what is God doing in your life? Where is He active? God never ceases to do mighty works. It's not like he created the heavens and the earth and rested on the seventh day so as never to lift his finger to do anything for his people ever again. That's totally contrary to what the, the, the whole narrative, the whole story of the Bible is telling us. God never ceases to do mighty works. And he never ceases to be excellent and great in all that he is and in all that he does. But I think sometimes we fail to turn our eyes to see these things. But so that you can worship God according to how his word calls us to for his mighty deeds and according to his excellent greatness, I challenge you, ask yourself and answer honestly the question, what is God doing in my life right now? Because whatever he's doing is worthy of praise. Maybe God's doing really good, helpful, beneficial things that, that, that bring you blessing in life right now. Maybe your job is going really well. Maybe your family is just flourishing. Praise God for that. It's all by His hand. Everything that we have and everything that we lack is from His hand. So praise God for the good things that are going on. Perhaps you're going through a difficult season. Maybe you're dealing with a lot of conviction of sin and you're you're struggling with how do you walk in repentance of this. Or maybe you're not even a believer yet, but you're you're thinking through what does it mean to follow Jesus. Friend, I encourage you to see these as ways that God is working in your life also and praise Him for it. If you're fighting sin or if you're struggling against sin and God through His Holy Spirit is convicting you of it, that's not a bad thing. That's a really, really good thing. Praise God for it. It may be hard to, might be hard to lift your voice because it hurts so much, you know, just in your soul to be having this war between what your heart desires and what the Holy Spirit wants you to do. But all the same, praise God for that battle. What's God doing in your life? Good, hard, hard. Praise Him all for it. Everything God does is an appropriate cause for worship, not just the good stuff, also the really, really hard stuff. I found in my life that it's usually the most difficult, the hardest things that God is doing in me and through me that result in the greatest level and volume and degree of worship to God. Because apart from His help, apart from His work, I never would come to see those things for what they are. never would make those changes in my life that need to be made. never would be able to see God's grace on display as I repent of sin and follow him faithfully, except that he does that hard work in me. So good or hard, praise God for whatever he's doing. But let us all give ourselves good cause to worship by being aware, opening our eyes, asking God to show us what he's doing in our life, because everything that he does is good cause for worship. So we have the place of God's praise in verse 1. We have the reason for God's praise in verse 2. Then in verses 3 through 5, we have all of the instruments of God's praise. I was reading through these verses. and How am I going to preach about musical instruments? And we would just skip those and move on to the last. No, we won't do that. In these three verses, 3, 4, and 5, the psalmist lists eight different instruments and dance as tools for amplifying our worship. As, as ways to, to express the exultant praise that is taking place within our hearts and overflowing into our lives. He mentions all different kinds of categories of instruments. Did you notice there are wind instruments, trumpet and pipe. There are string instruments, lute, harp and strings just in general. Did you bring all those with you today? Percussion instruments, tambourine, Sounding symbols, which are probably like something like uh, finger symbols or, or precursors to castanets, small little clanging symbols you'd wear on your hands. Clashing symbols, which are clashing symbols. Uh, we were at a football game last night and the band was playing. They play clashing symbols. And then even includes something that's not a musical instrument, it's a bodily movement dance. Now listen, this is not an exhaustive list of musical instruments. There were, in the day of the psalmist, more instruments than these. But again, the, the psalms are poetry, so we get the idea of what the psalmist is saying here. There's not an instrument, there is not an instrument in all of the world that cannot be used for making music to God. There are, there are no such thing, I don't think, I can't think of one as a satanic instrument. Some would say electric guitar, but y'all, I've heard some people shred praises to God on that thing. By the way, I think that's the first time I've ever air-guitared behind the pulpit. Yeah, Lord willing, it'll be my last. There is not an instrument in all the world that cannot be used for making praise and music to God. This is a whole orchestral call to worship, and not just, not just the highfalutin instruments that a king might have in his court harp, lute, strings. These are, these are instruments that royalty would have around them because they were expensive to make and it took a lot of skill to play. But every instrument that, that, that everyone can think of, even simple, easy to play, easy to construct instruments like pipe and tambourine are included as well. Now, of course, these are not the only acceptable instruments for, for use. In praise to God, every instrument from harmonica to oboe From didgeridoo to French horn, from electric guitar to viola and cello, from clapping hands to timpani drums, you name an instrument and it can be used for making music to God, the psalmist says. And not just music. Hold on, Baptists. But dance as well. And this is at least the second time in these last five psalms that dance is mentioned as a part of praising God. Verse 4, praise him with tambourine and dance. Last week, Psalm 149, I, gave, uh, uh, I asked Aaron Hollitz to preach the hardest of the Psalms in all of these uh, last five Psalms, and it was hard for other reasons, and he avoided an even more difficult one. Verse 3, Psalm 149, verse 3, let them praise his name with dancing. He's like, I don't have time to mess with that. There's too many other hard things. Just move right along. And certainly, dance. We've seen culturally, and not just our culture but others, dance at times has inappropriate and even sometimes sexualized expressions. And that is not what God is calling for in Psalm 150. But, listen, dance can be worshipful too. In Exodus chapter 15, after the Lord delivered the Hebrews through the Red Sea and out of Egypt... And after Moses sang his song of God's victory over their enemies, Moses and Aaron's sister Miriam leads all of the women of, uh, of the people of Israel in a song with tambourines and dancing in praise to God. Now, I'm not saying you have to dance to worship God. Some of you probably shouldn't. But listen, it's not wrong if the Spirit moves for you to move yourself in praise to God. Now, the way you dance in praise to God, you, you, this might be as far as you get on a Sunday morning as we're singing. And that's okay. Praise the Lord. Move your body in uh, praise to God. Now, I'm not calling for all of us to start doing the Watusi in the aisles next Sunday morning either. Right? The Watusi is a real dance. Look it up, kids on YouTube. Right, there are appropriate expressions of dance. There are orderly expressions of bodily movement in praise to God. And the psalmist calls for that. Sometimes, friends, in light of God's goodness, wrapped up in his greatness, full of joy with his salvation, you just got to get down. And that's on video. And i wishing I hadn't done that. But sometimes you got to move sometimes you got to move. Listen, we have, this, we have, we have this, this listing of all these appropriate instruments for praising God, musical and bodily. What we find in these verses is that all creative expression that glorifies God is good for worship. Every place is an appropriate place for worship of God. Everything God does in our life is good cause to worship him. And every creative expression that brings glory to God, that highlights his goodness, his greatness, whatever aspect of his character you are praising, all creative expression that glorifies God is good for worship. Do you play an instrument? Do you write music or lyrics or songs for singing? Are you an artist, painter, a dancer, a sculptor? Are you a jeweler, a leather worker, a gardener? Friend, consider how you might use any of, of these creative aspects of who God has made us to be. We all, we all have them. I hear people say all the time, oh, I'm just not really creative. It's like, no, you're just, you just don't think you're creative in the ways that everybody else thinks you should be creative. All of us have creative streak. All of us who enjoy working on something have a, a creative streak. Some of us like designing landscapes and building walls. Praise God for that creative streak. There are all of us who who have creative ability, are able to create things that result in the worship of God, not just music. So consider how you would use that creative impulse within you, whatever it looks like, for worship to God. And it doesn't have to be always writing songs for the church to sing. Even musically speaking, one of the greatest composers of all time, Johann Sebastian Bach, was a strong believer did not write just songs for the church. He wrote some for the church, but he also just wrote songs to get paid, right? But at the end of every one of his works, he initialed them with three letters, S, D, G, which stand in place of the Latin phrase, soli deo gloria, which means all things to the glory of God alone. Johann Sebastian Bach, using all of his creative impulse, everything that God has given him, even writing symphonies for the public to be enjoyed. For him, it was an act of worship. Eric Liddell, the Olympic runner of so many years ago, the movie Chariots of Fire, tells his story. He was asked, why does he run? Why is he so compelled to race and to run? And he says, because when I run, I feel God's pleasure. For him, running was worship. It was an an expression of his life that glorified God, and it was good. Worship is not just a thing that we go to. Worship is not just... The songs we sing. And because God desires sincere and whole life worship, we should not only think about worship, even as we're expressing ourselves creatively, as a thing to be observed, as just a thing to, a performance to be evaluated. I think that there is a a particular superficiality, a thinness of worship among churches today because we have come to approach worship as a thing that we go to and a performance that we watch. I go to worship to watch talented musicians do worship, right? Sing praises to God. It's a thing that I go to and stuff that I watch and listen to. Friends, that is not what Psalm 150 is calling us to. It's calling all of us to active participation in it. So if your impulse after Sunday morning worship is to go home and think about, All of the chords that were played rightly or played wrongly, all of the notes that were sung well or maybe not sung as well as they could have been by those who were on the stage. Friend, you are approaching worship all wrong. It's not a it's not a a performance to evaluate, but it's an expression of praise to God to be participated in. Do you know how Pastor Danny and I evaluate the worship of the congregation every Monday morning when we meet? We don't ask, how did the band play? how was the music? The question that we have come to commonly ask ourselves, sometimes on Sunday morning right after worship is over, sometimes Monday morning is, how did the congregation sing? How did the saints sing? Did they sing at all? If not, why not? Was the song too hard to sing? Sometimes that's, listen, that's just part of it. There's songs that are hard to sing. Or is there something else going on? Is there something spiritually going on in the life of the church that they're not singing well? Or do they sing especially well, like so much that we almost stopped playing music on stage because the church was just taking over worship? I I wish that that was our response more Monday mornings. But worship is a thing to be engaged in, to be participated in, physically, bodily, musically, not just a thing to be evaluated. We see in this list of instruments in Psalm 150, all kinds of them, high and low, common and uncommon, right? I would hope that this great diversity of instruments that are mentioned here, and the number of times that worship is mentioned in other places, even in the New Testament, and the kind of songs that ought to be sung, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, Paul says in Colossians 3, I would hope that in light of this reality from Scripture that we would just put to bed the worship wars. You know what I'm talking about. Should our church sing hymns or should we sing praise courses? One or the other is more holy, I know for sure, so let's sing that one. How new is too new of a song to sing? How old is too old of a song to sing? Well, I know that's a hymn, but I don't really like it that much, so I'm going to call it something else and we're just not going to sing it anymore. Psalm 150, that song's too new. We've sung it four weeks in a row. I can't worship to that anymore. Can we just stop with that mess as Christians? Can, can we just come to see that our job, that our work in worship, is striving not to sing mindlessly, but to sing mindfully. And not to sing any words about God, but to sing true words about God. Not to sing just any song, but to sing songs that everyone can sing, tunes that everyone can sing, whether they're old or new. Let's come to corporate worship with an eye, with 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 the intention of participating in worship, yeah. let it never be said of us that we fight over what constitutes worship when the words we sing are true, when the songs are singable, and when everyone is participating in it. All creative expression that glorifies God is good for worship. Fourth and finally, the psalmist draws attention in the last phrase of the, the last verse of the, all the psalter. He calls attention to the ones who give God praise. He's drawn our attention to the place of God's praise, the reason for God's praise, the instruments of his praise, and now to the ones who give him praise. The final line of Psalm 150 calls those who are commanded calls to those who are commanded to praise God. The psalm is speaking to the worshipful congregation. And that worshipful congregation, we find, is not in any way just limited to priests, just to those leaders who were able to enter the temple or enter the Holy of Holies. But he's speaking to all living creatures. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Now, this call, everything that has breath praise the Lord, is a call that's especially targeted to human beings. And you might not notice that just in reading Psalm 150, verse 6. But if you go back to and look at a, uh, just look at the Bible more broadly... To see, the first time that that word breath is used, you'll find that it's first used in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, when God creates man out of dust. God takes dust of the ground. He forms man in his image and in his likeness. And what does he do? We read in Genesis 2, 7, the Lord formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The psalmist says in 150 verse 6, let everything that has breath, the exact same word in Hebrew, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Verse 6 is a call to all human praise of the Lord for His great works and for His excellence. In the place of His dwelling, with all creative expression that they can muster, every human being is made for this. In Revelation 5, verse 13, John, in his vision of this heavenly throne room, recalls this. He says, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Two weeks ago, as Ken Stephan was preaching from Psalm 148, he asked us all the question, why are you here? As in, why, what is your purpose? Not just for being in church, but certainly that too. But why are you here? What is your purpose in life? And he reminded us of that age-old Christian answer to the question, what is the chief end of man? These questions that teach us about doctrine and what it is uh, that we are to believe about God and about ourselves. What is the chief end of man? The answer to which is to enjoy God and glorify Him forever. Understand this, friend. You are made for worship. Even the very breath that gives you life is meant to be inhaled in dependence upon God and exhaled in worship and devotion to the God who gives you life. We sang the song this morning, which declares to God, it's your breath in our lungs. So what do we do with it? Pour it out in praise to you and in praise to you only. We are made for worship, we are made for praise. All of the last five psalms of the Psalter are pointing us to this reality. Understand this morning, whether you're a Christian or not, that God is worthy of your unhindered worship, your unhindered praise. The psalmist is well aware of this, and he's encouraging every person, everything that has breath, who reads this psalm, he's reminding us all of this truth, we are made to praise the Lord. It is what we most rightly, most fitly do with our lives, that we give worship to God, Know this this morning. This is a final word of application for us, but maybe the most important. It's the most obvious, but the most important. Everyone, everyone is made for worshiping God. Everyone is made for this purpose. Just as jewels are fashioned and cut to reflect the light that shines on and through them in beautiful ways, so has God made us in his image to reflect his glory in praise and worship in beautiful ways as well. This is what we're made for, and we shine brightest when we're praising God. If you have a pulse this morning, (laughs) if there's breath in your lungs, friend, find in your heart a song of praise to sing to God. It's what you're made for. And maybe it's not a song, maybe it's a poem, maybe it's a prayer, maybe it's a, a, a word of gratitude or worship to God, maybe it's an artistic expression, maybe you got to get down in Bible study class a little bit and praise to God, I don't know, but whatever it is, let the majesty and the glory of God draw itself out of you today. Don't wait to worship till next Sunday. It's not just a thing we go to, it's not just a performance that we watch It's a thing that we do with every breath we take, every step we take, every beat of our heart, every action of our hands, every thought of our minds, desire of our hearts. Worship must be all-encompassing in our lives. Do not suppress worship of God. Do not suppress praise of God thinking, so-and-so is going to think I'm silly if I say that out loud. Or no one wants to hear me sing. I've heard myself sing. It's not very good. Surely no one else wants to hear it, so I'll just shut up when the congregation is singing. Don't be prone to thinking, people won't understand how this expression of my life, how this sculpture, this painting is part of my worship, so I'm just not going to share that with them. Listen, even though we worship together as a congregation in this place week to week on Sunday mornings, our worship, whether together or privately, is always for an audience of one. It's never for an audience of many. Not a one of us ought to worship hoping other people think well of us because of our worshiping. Our worship is all for God and to God and toward God irrespective of what others think or may wrongly judge about it. Our worship comes out of our lives. We are made to praise God not as a performance to be appreciated by others but as genuine praise and declaration of worth to the only God who deserves it. So friend, don't hold back your praise. Let it fly, so to speak. Let songs come out of your heart with gladness to the Lord. May it be true of us in this place, today and every Sunday and every day in between the Sundays, that everything that has breath in this place and among us, that we be using it to praise the Lord. It's what we're made for. Let everything praise the Lord. Will you pray with me?